Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, as always, we have a few things we want to make you aware of. Um, first up is Closure West, a big one for us, of course. Our conference, April 15th and 16th, this is 2016, out in Seattle this year. Um, coming up before the conference, there will be a couple bits of training that we'll be putting on. There's the Intro to Closure course. Um, that's the 13th and the 14th, so the two days before the, the conference. Um, I've taught that class. I think it's pretty good. Um, uh, you should check it out if you're interested in getting into closure. And we've actually had people who've been doing closure professionally come to the class and find it valuable. So, um, you know, you should check it out. There's information about all of our, all the conference and the workshops are on the website at closurewest.org. Um, so in addition to the Intro to Closure course, there's also a Datomic workshop taking place on April 14th, the day before uh, the conference. Again, details about that are um, at closurewest.org. Uh, of course, you can get your tickets there as well. All right, well, there's also a couple Closure Bridge events coming up. There are still a few seats left for Closure Bridge London happening February 19th and 20th. Um, and there's a Closure Bridge Boston coming up uh, March 18th and 19th. Again, this is all in 2016. Uh, information about Closure Bridge, including how you can donate, is available as always at closurebridge.org. Also want to mention Dutch Closure Days. Now this is a free event. Um, you can uh, search for Dutch Closure Days and you'll find their website. It's at ticketbase.com slash events slash Dutch Closure Days. Uh, 2016, that's hyphenated. Anyway, searching for it's probably your best bet there. But uh, that's happening March 19th um, in Amsterdam. Again, it's free. Um, looks like a pretty interesting event. Um, uh, Carlo uh, Schola, a, a former guest on the podcast, uh, let us know about that. So he's involved. So I think that'll be a, a fun event for you to check out. I think that's everything I want to mention today. So we will go ahead and get on to episode 97 of the Cognicast. Let's go ahead. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, January 22nd in 2016, which, just like it does every year, sneaks up on me and seems unreal Unreal that I'm saying that number, 2016, but here we are, our first, our first interview of the year, and we are thrilled to make that interview um, a conversation with Joseph Wilk, a developer and an artist and a well-known closurist and many other things besides. So welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. Glad you were able to make it today. I know it's a little bit later where you are over there in the UK, but I'm glad you were able to take time. And so we're going to start off, as we always do, by asking you a question, one which I think is especially appropriate. It's a question about art, and as we said, you are an artist. Uh, uh, one, in fact, who blends some of our favorite topics with art, as we'll get into. So we asked people to, to relate some experience of art, and I wonder what, uh, what you'd like to share with us. So uh, I think... Uh, a music concert I went to quite a while ago in a very old abandoned warehouse in central London, which was a headphone concert. And so kind of walking into the performance area was absolute silence. And you kind of had your headphone jacks dotted around the room and you kind of just got to observe everyone enjoying the music, but not actually hearing the music. 
And something that really, um, I guess, struck me about that was you kind of had various, I guess, DJs, different performers kind of coming on. Obviously, since the sound was a, like a choice, you actually plugged in. People unplugged their headphones and were just relaxing. So the artists, when they came on, had to really grab everyone's attention. And there was one guy who had constructed a costume out of kind of polystyrene. It was kind of like almost this alien shape. And as he came onto the room, without any music, everybody just immediately plugged in their headphones and started listening, waiting to hear what this guy was going to sound like. So I, I really like that aspect of not just the music, but the theater around the performance that is part of that. That's really interesting. I mean... I'd never heard of that before, so that's a very cool concept. And it's interesting to me that you point out the connection between the visual aspects of the performance and the, the audible one, especially given that, you know, now that I think about it, they're always there, right? Like there's a, often a light show involved in concerts and, and whatnot, especially for maybe more energetic music. You might not expect that too much with something like a chamber piece, but I guess at that point it's they're almost separated, right, to the point where you have to pay attention one or the other. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an experience, and you kind of, you don't, you can put on a CD and you can listen to the music, probably better fidelity than you will ever have in a live venue with a big sound system, but it's about that experience and about uh, being part of it with everyone and experiencing the artist performing. Well, so now this this whole blend between performance and the visual aspects of performance and the audible aspects of performance is I can't think of a better person to talk to about this, um, especially on this show, than you, because of the work that some you know some of the things you've been doing touch directly on this. I mean, I won't try to put words in your mouth. I, I think most people have probably heard of the things you've done, but I'll I'll let you tell the story. You've done a lot of work with both music and and visual aspects and specifically enclosure isn't that right yeah i guess i'll start where i started which was getting kind of into ai generative music and messing around with visuals with that using overtone actually through slight sleep deprivation of having a newborn baby i started coding at crazy hours and i had the daydream of creating ai generated nursery rhymes for her which was a lot of fun, but kind of got to the point where I'm not a trained musician, so I'm kind of making it up and learning through code as I go along. Kind of got to the point where I understood the AI and kind of understand logic, but didn't really understand, I guess, the details around music theory. And so I kind of started diving into that and really kind of, I guess, started moving towards performance from having to learn music theory. Code is a fantastic way to learn music theory. And I've always been a very visual person. I've always done, I'm obsessed with various movies and lots of cinematic effects. So I kind of like those performances to merge some of the, I guess, the cinema aspects into them. And also something to distract in that, uh, as I said, I had no music theory. So the first time I ever went and performed kind of coding, um, live coding and music and visuals, the visuals is also an amazing way to gain you confidence because visuals, it's much easier to know if they're good or not or if they're acceptable or not. With music, it's much, much harder because it's such a broad range and so many different audiences and someone's always going to hate and like it. The kind of visuals almost give you a confidence to go out there and perform both music as well. 
Yeah, so I took a look at your some of the performances you've done. They're really interesting. There's sort of, you know, oftentimes I guess I might use the word swirling visualizations, you know, th- behind, as a backdrop to the, the code that you're writing, which in turn is producing music, which in turn I believe is producing the visuals. And so this is something that you've done live, as you said. Is that something you do frequently? And also I wanted to ask you, when we were talking before the show, I said, well, how would you like to be introduced? And you said, oh, I'd like to be introduced as an artist. And I go, well, okay, that clearly applies in your case. When you say that you know you think of yourself as an artist, is that the thing that makes you think of yourself as an artist, or is there other other areas where you express yourself artistically as well? I, I guess I kind of like that idea that other people started to call me an artist rather than myself calling an artist. So that felt like some affirmation that this might be art. I, I think it, it was kind of the moment of realizing that artists have lots of different medium, and code is a material for art, and that kind of, I guess, a little switch in my brain of realizing that the code is an expressive way to capture thoughts, but it's also a way of self-expression and starting to write code that people watch and then realize the effect of that on the world. I guess, I guess kind of performance art really is one of the things it started to connect with. And in terms of the community and the people around the kind of whole live coding of music and visuals, is a lot of artists mainly. So it's kind of going into those circles. You gain a sense of contributing something new and, and that's people who are already artists enjoy your work that gives you a bit of self-confidence maybe that you could also be an artist. And I also think I've touched more people through code art than I ever have in product. And I think of the things I'm most proud of are the live coded performances I've done and and more so that uh, they've been shown around in um, schools and the kids have kind of been blown away that this is what programming could actually be like and that to me, be it art or not, is one of the most rewarding bits of code I've ever written, I think. So it's interesting to me that you say that you feel you've touched more people through your performances than through product because... I feel like something like a performance, you know, you're, you're interacting with people who are in essence in the room, although obviously there's recorded media and maybe that's what you mean. Whereas with product, I feel like there's leverage, right? You can get it out into the world more. I suppose it depends on what you're making. And, and especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you're one of the contributors to, well, a number of libraries, but one of them is, is Sonic Pi. So, yes, yeah, that's right. Um, I guess I'm, I'm just a little surprised to hear that you, you say that you're, you're, in terms of number of people at least, the biggest impact you feel you've had has been um, through the performances. Yeah, so I guess I should expand on that thought that in all the products I've built, the code is not part of the experience. Uh, so no one ever sees what mm-hmm. I write. And that's pretty much true for everything I've done in a product. But here, the code is, is a fundamental part of the piece. And people who have no coding background can start to see what code could be and can even read meaning into it and read their own meaning into it as well. So it's kind of the thing that I I can go home and and show my friends and family and they will get what I'm doing and that they will get that that's code while everything else, it's it's kind of an invisible layer that's hidden away. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. And and I'm I'm actually fascinated by your comment when you say you share it with friends and family. I assume you mean non-programming friends and family. People who have never touched code ever. So now when you do that, that's interesting. Now when you do that and you say that they understand it, do you, do you feel that they're making an actual like, direct connection between the symbols that you're typing and what's happening? Or is it more 
a little fuzzier than that, where they're like, oh, I, I get it. You're actually making a computer do things by typing. Or, or do you think you're actually saying, oh, wow, the, the letter A there means this. Is it that type of connection that they're getting or mo something more abstract? Yeah, so I, I, I purposely do a lot of play with variable names and trying to create things which express the sounds or the visuals that are going to happen. So there's already a lot of meaning uh, in the words. So I think even as, as like a piece of literature, it's readable and... It's, I think it, it's often um, the fact that they can see a variable name, you know, uh, something like dark seahorn or something like that, and they already start to form in their head an idea of what that variable means, and then they hear it, and now they've kind of got that connection with the meaning and the sound, and then they can see me manipulating and changing it. So it's kind of on, on many levels of that semantic meaning in terms of the variable names they kind of get, and then the logic, often with music, it's a lot of patterns, and um, patterns can be very intuitive to understand um, to everyone, I think. So, you know, transposing notes, doing very simple things, people start to either learn through the music or learn the music through the code. That's really cool. And of course, that applies to all types of coding, even though I suspect some of your audience at least doesn't realize it, right? But that a symbol has a meaning, and you manipulate the symbol, and it, and it has this expression in the in the real or virtual world, that's, that's, an, that's a powerful concept, I think, that is a lot of programming. So it's cool that you're giving people that. Huh, neat. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've actually started doing um, Sonic Pi with my 11-year-old uh, daughter fairly recently. And we had Sam on the show, and he talked a bunch about it when it first came out. One of the great things about it is that there's a, there's a curriculum, right? Like, we walked up to it, my daughter and I, and I was like, okay, I don't have to think about, okay, well, should we start with... This or start with that is like it goes right from the top. I hear you talk about, you know, giving people this experience of understanding the connection between symbols and things that happen in the real world, like symbolic manipulation, essentially, which is, you know, as we both know, like a really important part of what it means to be a, a software developer. And of course, that's present in a first class way in Sonic Pi. And I was wondering whether that was something. That, that connection, that experience of creating that connection in other people's heads in that way that's so important, was something that you brought to Sonic Pi? Like in your, when you were coming to it, you're like, oh yeah, we really need to do more of this and, and bring it, or something that you got from Sonic Pi, or they evolved independently, or just whether there's any connection there. I think one of the things I got from doing a lot of closure is the feedback loop. It's like uh, irrelevant of everything else, the feedback loop has to be fast. And if you speak to a lot of people about some very early experiences they have of coding, things like logo, moving the turtle around, the feedback loop is super fast. So I think one of the, the in fact, uh, guiding principles of Sonic Pi was more of that feedback loop being so fast that it's very easy to associate meaning to the code. And it's very easy to play with the code and then hear the results. And then there's kind of that reward cycle as well of, you know, you play a couple of notes, that's great. Then you start shuffling them, loop them around, just very little simple programming concepts through a very fast feedback loop take you on a very kind of, I guess, very quick journey through programming and through music. So I think actually that it's all about the feedback. And I think developers are most happy when that feedback loop is tight. No one wants a slow feedback loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is key. And, and actually, you're a great guy to talk to about something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because um, so like a lot of people who come to closure from a language like say C-sharp in my case, 
Um, the type feedback that the REPL gives is super important to my uh, experience of, it's like one of the big benefits of closure, right, is that, is that feedback loop. But I find it fascinating that in general, the closure experience of other types of feedback is in fact not what we would like it to be. And specifically, I'm talking about um, visualization. Like I had some code recently where I was writing it and it's, it's a control loop. It's actually driving a motor and then the motor's trying to seek some position. And I was seeing oscillations or, you know, other types of problems. And, I, of course, I have, you know, the ability to dump it out to a text file. But then I'm looking at a pile of numbers. Uh, and then I could, you know, maybe bring it into Excel or Google Sheets or whatever and do all that. But I'm like, man, there's, there's this type of problem. And then there's the other type of problem that we have all the time in Clojure, which is I've got a giant nested data structure. And I can print it out, and that's one type of visualization. But it's honestly not a very good one. I mean, you know, so I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, have you observed the same thing? Have you observed that there is, to some degree, either a hesitancy to use existing visualization techniques or a lack of visualization techniques at all? That, that's kind of the exact polar opposite of this feedback loop we get around the, the program itself, manipulating functions and VARs and all that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it applies to all programming languages and, and that, that visual feedback. Um, it's in fact something that I'm doing a lot of exploring about now, trying to, I guess in a live coding kind of context, you're always continuously running code and loops are running. And then by actually presenting visualizations that are behind a block of code that's running, you kind of gain something that I'm trying to think, actually. I guess I'm not sure I've seen it in many editors where you are, have some visual representation of the code that's running and you see both the code and the visual representation. I guess we've kind of got very into like debugging sort of style or breakpoints and that sort of stuff, which uh, is a very powerful way to have introspection of um, what's happening at uh, execution time. Um, I kind of I kind of wonder if it's just that it has a high cost in terms of tooling. If you think of all the most powerful editors, they I mean, I say powerful, more GUI-orientated powerful editors, they tend to be slow or tend to use a lot of memory or always have some clunkiness. And hence why I think a lot of people turn to the very simplicity model of things like Vim and Emacs and uh, the various other editors. So kind of with that, you're giving, you're throwing away that complexity, which I think might be associated with that extra visual level of uh, feedback. Although Emacs in itself, I have augmented to try and provide more feedback, but it's hard with just text to try and really convey a lot of meaning without it being noise around the coding experience. Yeah, so I feel like I agree, right? There, when, when you have an editing environment that, that come, becomes bloated because of a variety of things, it gets in your way. But I guess it's, it seems to me, perhaps naively, that the, the types of visualizations that we could take advantage of um, I'm thinking of something at, at the simplest, perhaps, as something like the Closure Inspector, which is was worked on for a while. For those that remember it, uh, it was a you know it was kind of a I think it was a swing interface for walking through nested data structures. It doesn't doesn't seem to really have gone anywhere. I'm not even sure it totally works anymore. But it, that feels like a sort of optional thing that you could rely on when you wanted to. It would be orthogonal. Um, and I'm just wondering whether, as you've thought about visualizations, you've come across anything you feel that would be um, universal or at least broadly applicable that we're just not not doing for whatever reason? I think there's probably a lot we're not doing, but uh, there may be many reasons why we're not doing them. 
I guess in terms of kind of visualizing the data and stuff, it is all a balance of noise and how much the visuals augment the experience and how much value they add. Um, one of the really simple things, which isn't necessarily about the data, but is more about the closures that I've seen quite a, a couple of places, is a, a tool called um, Scheme Bricks. Uh, it's a project by Dave Griffiths that um, creates kind of his own editor. And uh, his, his simple idea is that uh, closures are bricks. And uh, every, every um, uh, enclosed closure is another brick of a different color. So you start to see um, a series of bricks, basically, uh, forming the programming language. And then to kind of get feedback on the data and the data structures, um, those bricks have various connections with variables to each other. And those are conveyed through kind of flashing lines slightly, or not quite flashing, but these kind of little lines that indicate almost electri electrical signal flowing between the various closures. I thought that was a, a really interesting um, experiment in kind of, I guess, capturing that execution aspect of, of the coding part and also seeing the, seeing the data and how things are interconnected. So it's kind of a, it's not um, necessarily as auxiliary as kind of opening up an inspector and seeing a bunch of stuff. Um, it's more uh, seeing a system live, which I guess is where most of my experience and research lies. Interesting. Uh, so I'm curious then, um, when, you, when you say you've been doing research, can you talk a little bit about that? I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what you've been working on. I have far too many projects. I do, I do a lot. Um, <laughs> So as I'm really interested in how visuals can be used to convey a live system, especially in a music context, as talking about Sonic Pi, one of the projects I'm working on is when you have a thread and it's looping infinitely and you're prodding at bits of that code and changing it, um, how you can convey using visual graphics, like an OpenGL window behind that bit of code, uh, what's happening to it. And you know, like how, how fast is it running? Is it blocked? Is there an error? Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of, uh, I guess, UX, and um, again, that kind of constraint of nine-year-old kids must understand this as well. That uh, throws away a lot of complexity, which is fantastic and um, terrible at the same time. I'm working on a project um, at the moment involving the British Arts Council, um, looking at how to celebrate Shakespeare. Um, I'm looking at how I can combine live coding in a performance using Shakespeare's um, plays. Um, doing a lot of uh, kind of messing around with semantic analysis, uh, more generative based at the moment. Um, still just playing around with how we combine code and Shakespeare. Um, really inspired a lot by, um, I forget the name of the book. There's a, there's a fantastic book of like, what would code look like if Shakespeare wrote it? Or various uh, famous authors as well. So that's um, something I'm really digging into. What else am I looking at? And I'm building my own kind of OpenGL graphics state machine engine at the moment, um, just exploring how people performing through code can very rapidly manipulate graphics um, with very, very simple terse commands. Um, it's kind of a mix between Quill processing, um, all based using open frameworks, uh, which is a fantastic uh, visual tool, and what we can do with that as well. It's kind of all in, all in the path of trying to work out what programming is as a performance and how you go along to a place where nobody knows what code is and share it with them and have them gain something from the experience. You know, I was struck earlier when you were talking about um, code as a medium for art. The fact that when, when I look at a piece of code, I can, with some reliability, um, if it was written by somebody I know, say, oh, 
Stuart Sierra wrote that, or you know, oh, that looks like a bit of um, Luke Vanderhart's code, or whatever. <laughs> it's kind of like the kind of like the brush strokes on a canvas that experts can distinguish one artist from another. And everyone can say what what like uh, I had this question a while back with people of like, what's the most beautiful piece of code you've written? It was fascinating all the answers of you know some saying like the the line of code that I deleted that was my most beautiful line of code or. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's the whole, I forget, was it Fortran or Coach uh, Cobol, like the go-to, there's a like a, a one-liner that's been, has an entire book written on it all about um, how it's created generative art. Um, it's kind of beauty in code, I think, is definitely a thing we all understand. And even if we don't necessarily always acknowledge it on the wall as a piece of art, we, we definitely have the concept of beautiful code. So what was your answer to that question, if you had one? Uh, I, I did have an answer. Let me think. What, what did I say my most beautiful bit of code was? Um, it was a single exclamation mark. Um, I added um, on my thesis, uh, it was a massive prologue program. And I spent probably about three months um, analyzing this uh, AI planning system. And uh, my sole contribution to those three months was a single exclamation mark, which was just cutting the, the in prologue, cutting the backtracing. And uh, I was so satisfied that I had a big comment next to it for anyone who's reviewing the code saying, like, this took three months. This is where I started. This was my contribution. So the smallest and I think perhaps the most beautiful bit of code I've ever written. And uh, yeah, I have to assume it made a difference. I mean, that's, that was a performance uh, thing, I assume, right? Yeah, it was also it was uh, exhaustively searching, and it's kind of pruning the tree at the right points made it uh, computationally feasible. Cool. It was uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun messing with Prolog. I think Prolog is by far where my most beautiful code lies. I think. Interesting. I have yet to look into Prolog other than sort of indirectly through things like um, CoreLogic and of course Datalog. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I, I heard your your child a moment ago, and you reminded me that you said something earlier that I want to let go, which was that you had written um, a nursery rhyme generator. Yes. Did, did that did that ever become? Did it ever start producing interesting nursery rhymes? Yes, it did. Um, uh, it it uh, it uh, appealed to actually it's appealed throughout most of my daughter's life. She's now a three, and uh, I play her a lot of like AI generative stuff and. She likes listening and messing around with that as well. Um, I think what you learn is that actually the appreciation levels of a very young baby, as long as it doesn't sound terrible, they're pretty happy. Um, I also did a whole feedback loop stuff of looking at uh, uh, EEG machines and things like that around that so she could generate the nursery rhymes or, or the, the music herself as well. So it was kind of taking brain scans and feeding that in as data, which was controlling um, the music, which meant if she was excited, the music would change. And if she was bored, it would change sort of thing. But again, like it, it sounds very fun, but I think ultimately resolved in the fact that a small child's attention span is extremely small. So it's kind of just like continuously drift away and then comes back, drift away and then comes back and then goes. That is fascinating. So now, um, did she have any understanding or awareness of the fact that she was influencing what was going on or she was just kind of around and it was reacting no. to what she was feeling yeah no i don't i don't, th I don't think uh, at kind of her young age she, she had any concept other than it changed and she noticed the change sort of thing um i don't think she had much concept of of what, of what exactly papa mm -hmm. was doing well let's see she's she's yeah. three now so she's sort of beginning yes. to understand the world around her in a in a more concrete way do you have plans to to revisit that experiment i think that'd be fascinating yes yeah um i'm i'm always trying to build um devices so she can kind of code or make music as well so um i've programmed various devices 
like Monem's uh, little box of LED buttons and the laptop keyboard as well. So she can start to play music and have little kind of co-routines where she presses them and it runs off a little bit of music. Um, so I'm definitely really interested in joining her for the journey of like discovering programming, discovering code and seeing uh, what we can both do together. That's very cool. I mean, three is very young, but have you had any, have you had any experience yet where even in a small way you feel like she has started to, to make some kind of connection? Like, I mean, there's this, there's a thing that goes on in our brains that I, I, I find it hard to explain where, you know, the, the idea of this abstract world that we're manipulating that we were talking a little bit about earlier, have you seen any, three is very young, so I won't be surprised if the answer is no, mm-hmm. but um, have you seen any evidence that that type of thing is happening with her? I, I, I guess I guess if I kind of concrete it down to what I do with computers and messing around with music and things, um, I think understanding of the fact that she can do something on the keyboard and hit run and it sounds different and then she changes it and it sounds different that kind of that understanding of the world in a more concrete way of the she can do something run it and then hear its response is definitely developing um it's it's so hard to tell with anything else um the more more development more uh concept of of time i guess is is the main thing that happens sure sure so in your work with um with with older children through Sonic Pi, um, one of the things I am interested in is thinking about you know, uh, and, and obviously you know you and Sam and the rest of the team have done a lot more work with this. Um, is this idea of computer literacy? And I guess you know, I think you could have a definition of programming, a useful definition of programming that's that's very broad to include you know getting a computer to do what you want, even to carrying out sets of instructions where you, you don't have to be explicit at every moment that the computer is carrying them out, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And, and I think there's a sense in which um, those efforts are successful when people don't think of that as programming, right? Like they, they use it as, uh, as an appliance it, if if it, yeah. am I making yeah. any sense? And does that line up with what Com- you've completely? Like, um, no, no kid goes. I'm going to learn a for loop. The kids with Sonic Pi are like, <laughs> okay, I've got this note, and it just goes. Beep. It's like now I want it to go beep 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 sort of thing. It's like, well, I need a loop, and you know, I I need to have a baseline, and I want a drum. Well, you need to have threads. You need some concept of concurrency. No one approaches programming in that way of thinking. Like, I need threads. They think. I want two things sounding at the same time. So it's totally uh, like a music driven. And I think even at a young age, we have a very well-developed sense of what we want for music and we get bored very easily, which means we're totally driven by the music rather than the code. It's to facilitate mm-hmm. us creating the music that I think drives the kids. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I sat down with, like I said, my 11 year old and we, we, we busted out Sonic Pi and I'm like, oh, this is, this is great. Let's try it. She loved it. And um, I remember Sam talking about, uh, you know, the typical experience where, you know, the, the, the kids will sit down and type out, I forget the syntax exactly, it's, it's right there in front of me, you know, when you have the thing open, so it's easy to, mm-hmm. to get through. Uh, but it's like play 64, you know, play as middle C or whatever it is. And uh, he said the kids will often, you know, play 64, sleep one, play 65, sleep one, play 66, sleep one. And that's exactly what she did, and she loved it so much. And it's going to be really interesting to see if, you know, as you say, right, that she gets motivated to learn something like a for loop, which she has had some exposure to through Scratch, but in this new environment, um, 
as a way to do that more easily. And I, I suspect that you've seen that exactly that transition on any number. Yeah, of it's, it's true. All kids n never use the loop because it's, uh, I guess it's more explicit when you write it, write it all down. Um, I still do that myself as well. I'm not sure necessarily there is a, that, that much of a drive always for those for loop things, but I think, uh, it kind of comes down to how easily it is to change, right? So kind of the experimentation is fun, but then you want to start mutating it and changing it. And just the same way we like don't like duplication in code, it's kind of the same. It's because it makes some ideas easier to express and change easier to express. So as soon as they kind of like, you know, oh, actually, I now want to change every single note and like add a fifth to them. It's like, ah, okay, that's a lot of work. You'd have to go and type every single one of these things here. It's like, oh, you know, is there a fast way to do it? Well, yeah, what? It's just, we can do this thing called a loop. And again, it's that kind of like always driven by some need rather than it being a, you know, falsely injecting, let's do the loop sort of thing. It's simply a, an easier way to experiment. Maybe you can explain a little bit to people some of the time model of Sonic Pi. People should definitely check it out. It's very cool. But it's a little bit different, right, like than, than a lot of languages, I think, in the sense of when you look at what's on the page, um, what's happening simultaneously versus what isn't. It's not quite the same way as, as what people might have encountered before. It's, it's the idea that um, when you play a note and then you have another line after it that plays another note, they occur um, concurrently. Because that kind of makes sense with music. If you want to play a chord, you play three notes, you have a play and then another play and another play, uh, uh, imperative style, but they all play at once. And then you use a, a sleep, which we can think of as a beat. So you tell how many beats you want it to sleep. And then again, you hit another phase where you can do things concurrently, which, which works very well for music, in fact, actually. And it's this thing I was kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about a temporal recursion or the different ways of approaching the timing model, um, kind of temporal recursion where you have a little bit of code that kind of calls, keeps calling back on itself is an extremely hard concept to teach to nine-year-old, even young, even, even adults, anyone, to be honest with you, who hasn't had program experience, temp saying this is the fundamental uh, component for you making music is time and you need to understand temporal recursion in order to do it um, is very hard. But saying, well, it just, you hit sleep and it waits and then you can have as many plays as you want. So you can play five, six, seven notes if you want and hence understand what a chord is and all the different things you can do to a chord as well. It, it fits very nicely with the timing. Yeah, and so that makes perfect sense. The, the, only, the thing that's a little weird to me is that, um, uh, well, I guess maybe that it's not that it's weird to me. It's that I wonder what your experience with newcomers is versus mine. So I look at a, a Sonic Pi program, and if I'm not thinking about it, right, it says, you know, play, 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 sleep. And in my mind, those things are sequential, right? The first play comes before the second play, comes before the third play, comes before the sleep. It's interesting. We, we, you say they're sequential, but I guess ultimately in terms of actual like execution of what's going on, they're happening so fast that they might as well be concurrent, unless they're blocking for some reason. If you have three very simple lines of code, they're pretty much happening concurrently, even if they occur one after the other. And with the notes, um, okay, it is actually playing them concurrently, but if they happen fast enough after each other, such that you can't, there's no perceivable um, difference in time, then I think we think of some imperative big code as being, of having that flow, but it's so fast that I'm not sure a human would necessarily perceive that if there's no IO blocking. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I mean, obviously, um, uh, well, maybe not obviously, but certainly when I look at Sonic Pi, I don't find that confusing when I actually spend the minimal amount of effort it takes to re remember that's what's going on. I guess my question is more around 
um, do you, as you're teaching, say, a nine-year-old this stuff, ever run into um, the any kind of a mismatch between their expectations around when things are happening and the way they're written on the page. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause, cause yes, it's happening very, very quickly, but in my, in my head, in my programmer head, without thinking about it, or when I first walked up Sonic Pi, I'm like, Oh, well, those are, those are sequential. Yeah. The Delta is very small, I guess, depending on how the engine is implemented, blah, 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 all these technical details. But if I was absent all that, and I'm a nine year old kid, I've never, never programmed a computer before. Do you find that they completely accept that right off the bat? They're like, Oh yeah. Those yeah. three things are happening at the same time. Yeah. So there's, I find that there's, there's usually that first bump of like, oh, that's how it works. And, and in fact, the, the kids move straight on. The programmers that I show this to stop for a second and find the concept way more kind of, oh, wait a minute. I need to think about this for a bit. The kids, it, as I said, like they're more excited by the music. And hence, it's a very small little step in, the, in their first journey on Sonic Pi. And they just, it's, it's a very simple concept. They jump straight on because they want to do more stuff. That's fascinating. And so I wanted to follow on from there to come back to the idea of the visualizations that um, that you were talking about where you put – because Sonic Pi has this idea of, of its loops. Am I correct on that? Yes, Remember yeah, kind of yeah. threads that run a loop, yeah. Right, and so I think it's great that you didn't call them threads, uh, first yes. of all. <laughs> and, and second of all, it's a neat idea and well-executed. And, um, and I really like the idea of having kind of – you know, some visual aspect that emphasizes their independence. And I kind of wonder whether, you know, there might not be some space in the closure world with something like maybe futures or maybe even more importantly, you know, with core async, right? These communicating sequential processes, whether Mm -hmm. when I look at my program and can go, okay, that thing has an independent, I mean, although it's a little bit weird with core async with Go because it's notionally independent, but in practice, it's actually interleaved. But I wonder whether you think there might be any leverage from a plot. I don't know if you've looked at Coruscant, but just like that whole idea of like being able to see where things are happening um, in parallel. Yeah, um, I definitely think um, at worst, the output at worst, the output will be some art that's quite interesting. At, at best, it may actually um, augment and be a helpful tool. But I kind of am I'm very open minded in just trying these things and seeing what it looks like. And I, I think with kind of data flow and um, Stuff like Core Async, it, it could be a very interesting way of running your test and then seeing what's going on, not just the result of the test, but actually seeing the test run and seeing the effect and the blocking of the various aspects of it. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely something I'm interested in um, doing more work on. Interesting. You, so I, I, I have talked to Racket people uh, from time to time. They always have really amazing ideas. I vaguely recall, and, and I haven't done it as seriously as I would like to, given that I think I'd get a lot of benefit from it. I haven't played much with um, Dr. Racket. Uh, I, I don't know whether there's anything in there that you could mine or if, you're, if, you're, if you've looked at it at all. Do you, are you familiar at all with any of the work that's been done in that space on the Racket side of the world? Uh, the Racket, the Lisp language, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the main thing I know with uh, Racket is a tool called Fluxus that's uh, a live coding visual environment. Um, that's more about prototyping live visuals. I don't think I've heard of Dr. Dr. Racket. Okay, it's this the it's the kind of the um, the GUI that uh, that you get out of the box in um, when you install Racket. Ah, okay. There's been some cool stuff in there. I, I don't know whether any of it applies. I was just curious if you'd seen it, just because the Racket community is such a wealth of good ideas. I was wondering whether this was an area that they had something that 
something that I've seen done with, with Fluxus in the, in the racket space is you move the code to, um, to the graphics library. So you're writing the code in OpenGL, which uh, suddenly means that the code is the graphics and the graphics are the code, which is very interesting. Um, I don't quite know yet. I'm still trying to experiment with that to see if that's the right way to go because you kind of then have whole fun issues with aliasing and scrolling and uh, lots of various aspects that uh, can be quite jarring, I guess, for someone who's used to coding in Emacs. I mean, imagine that you're the, when you first start typing, your font is massive. And as you type, the font continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller as it scales itself to the graphics window. It's, <laughs> it's interesting. And the racket people have done some really cool stuff about that that works really well. I'm, I love the idea that the code becomes the graphics. This is something I'm really interested in because even the performances that I've done, the code lays on top of the graphics. And, and I've I kind of talked to you that I'd like to augment the graphics to actually connect with the code. Ultimately, my goal is the code should be a fundamental part of the graphics. I want the code to do things along with the visuals, along with the sound. And I think maybe the racket kind of guys of that path of making the code actually part of um, the OpenGL window and being part of the graphics uh, has quite a lot of interesting scope. Just to make sure I understand what you mean when you say the, the code is the graphics, you mean it's still, it's still textual, like I'm still typing open parenthesis and, and the same things and I'm still seeing that, it's just that it's being rendered in a different way or is there something beyond that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's still, it's still all like everything is textual. Everything is you're, you're typing. It's just that what is being rendered, rather than um, being a character in your editor, is actually like a three-dimensional letter C. So you type the letter C. So it exists in the graphic space because the, the the problem you obviously you have when you have kind of text overlaying a visual is it's very hard to create that connection. It, it's a lot of work to you know, you have to use coordinates of where the code is. The, the graphics doesn't really know without you providing a lot of information what the code is. But as soon as you say, well, the code exists in 3D space and all my graphics exist in 3D space, then suddenly they can do a lot more with each other. You know, like the code could get bigger the louder the volume or, you know, the, the code can start to wobble slightly because the bass is so low and you can, you know drop a beat or all these various things that could have very interesting effects on the code. And don't think you could do that without moving the code into the graphics world. When you say the code, I mean, of course, our code is made up of different pieces. I mean, one obvious way to split it is functions, but there's namespaces, there's, you know, lexical blocks, there's all sorts of stuff. Do you, have you, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out, like, would it be the case that different functions would appear in different places? You know, lexical order still matters even at the namespace level. So how do you resolve those types of situations? I've seen quite a few um, kind of going towards, um, if you're familiar with kind of Max SP or some of the kind of patching libraries that a lot of musicians use where you can kind of think of everything of lots of blocks of modules connected with wires and uh, you're feeding a sound signal through the various blocks and the wires or how the signal moves between the blocks. That's pretty much the same analogy for the code. And I've, I've seen uh, a couple of uh, um, implementations where people have tried to do that for the functions in, in a visual kind of music performance, but they just have a bunch of functions and then they want to show what functions are calling what functions and create a, like a graph almost, um, again, with some sort of like live flow so you can kind of see the values go through the functions and come out the functions. So then I guess you, so obviously at a mechanical level in Clojure, um, the, the, there is a, we require an order among the functions in order for the, the compiler to work correctly. Um, I guess you would infer it at that point or it would be maintained for you. 
Yeah. Um, well, the function has to have been evaluated before you can call it, so it does exist in some scope, I guess, if you're going to do it ad hoc as the flow goes through the code. Um, I think it would be, it would be uh, easy enough, even, even with the order dependence. It's kind of, with my, all my live coding experiences, I've very rarely ever found that a problem because I'm evaluating everything and evaluating the functions, and as long as they're all defined, I, then it's more about the execution mm -hmm. of them than necessarily mm -hmm. the definition. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Wow, you're a you're a busy guy. How do you how do you do all this and raise a three year? And I'm, this is actually a serious question. How do you? Mm. I should ask this of more of my guests because I could use some advice. <laughs> do you have like a way that you approach work um, that allows you to still do the things that are not work? You know, like what what's what's your uh, workflow? I suppose might be a way to put it. What what are, how are you fitting in the things that you want to fit in? into the 24 hours that are all we all get in each day. Yeah. Um, so I guess making my work art kind of has helped in that um, one of the um, big moves I've made in my career is to give myself more time to do the things that I want to do around art that necessarily don't make me any money. Um, if I can contract and do more freelancing and have that flexibility, then I can kind of balance... And I find that very important having a child that uh, I'm getting that satisfaction of doing the artwork that I want to do in my work day such that I can put the computer away and spend time with my daughter and not feel like I have to kind of squeeze in that extra time um, in the evenings and hence miss, miss my time mm. with her. Yeah, that's... So it's, it's, it's been a progression. It's been like... Uh, I've kind of had places where I've worked where I've done uh, four days. I used to... Um, do uh, four fifths. So I was, had one day where I was just doing my art stuff, and that was fantastic. But then I wanted to do more and more art, and uh, it kind of seemed a natural progression to move towards a, a more, uh, I guess, balanced uh, work model with uh, art and paid work. That's actually, I mean, as you know, we do advice at the end of the show, and I find that our guests are always so maybe wise is the right word that by the end of the show they've already given like two or three really great pieces of advice. Um, I don't, we're not quite. To, we're certainly not quite to the point where we where we close down because I I definitely want to make sure that um, uh, we leave time for anything. I've been asking all the questions. I want to make sure I leave time for for you to uh, talk about any topics that you think are especially interesting to our to our listeners or that you just think is cool. What do yeah. I think is cool? Ah, oh, so much <laughs> that's cool. Um, so I think there's a, a, the, a lot of interesting stuff going on with the thing.ng library um, that's going on at the moment, which uh, is uh, a closure and kind of closure scripts library that I've been playing with a lot, um, uh, a lot around uh, 3D generation of uh, interesting shapes, dealing with like a torn fabric, dealing with cells growing, dealing with lots of interesting visual effects. And these tend to be exported to a, a big um, a rendering app. And kind of the, you then get a wonderful, you know, run 24 hours and you get a wonderful picture. But th there's a lot of really um, interesting uh, simple systems, uh, kind of very simple rule systems generating very complex uh, 3D um, images. And there are some people are now going and getting those uh, 3D printed as well. So you can kind of, using the ClojureScript library, creates and define a very simplistic, yet very uh, able to generate very complex space, um, a 3D image, which you can then go and get 3D printed and ends up being in an art ex exhibition. 
um, I think that's a beautiful balance of like what closure is absolutely fantastic for and uh, having, having something very visual to show people and explain as well the whole interesting of seeing the design and then hearing how the, what the closure algorithm is doing, uh, very simplistic stuff with Fibonacci and stuff and kind of seeing the visual effect of the, the item first and then taking that back to, oh, I see, that's, that's how the closure algorithm is working is, uh, is pretty amazing, I think. It's definitely something uh, I'm, I'm very interested in um, doing at the moment so as well. So this is, I haven't heard of this. this is th I, so I have a... Th Thing. thing. Yes, it's thing. It's just a thi dot ng. So I have a three D printer sitting next to me right now, and actually, it, it's I'm interested in this because one of the things I have found as I've done a bit more, I'm still very much a beginner, but um, is that I have, and actually, this play, this is really similar to like the space that you've been living in for so long, uh, which is. So I have some experience with 3D modeling in, you know, kind of an interactive way, like where you go into a 3D uh, CAD program. I use Google SketchUp because it's easily accessible, free, whatever. And, you know, but it's not parametric at all. Like you draw everything. Um, you know, you draw a rectangle and then you pull it up into a, a, a prism and then you, you know, punch out holes or whatever. But if you want to change something, you have to go in and tweak every line or point or whatever. Um, and so I've, I've started to move towards um, using OpenSCAD or OpenSCAD, I'm not sure how you say it, um, which is a scripting language that you write a Python, Ruby, whatever, JavaScript-style language, and you produce your models that way. And there's actually a closure um, library which you can use that compiles to the SCAD script language, which, you know, therefore you have a REPL, you're making changes, and you're seeing them in real time in a 3D environment, and then I can print those. And in fact, I've done exactly that to print um, various, um, like, pulleys and... and a few other things um, that I've been interested in making. And, of course, the huge benefit is that since it's information, it's easy to change. Oh, I need this hole to be 5% bigger. And there's 20 of them, and I need to go around to 20 different holes and make them 5% bigger and get it all right and all that good stuff. Um, it's, so it's very much like the 3D version of, you know, where you're like, well, I'm going to do music, but I'm going to do it you know, procedurally or algorithmically or generatively, do the same thing with actual physical objects now. That's fascinating. Um, so so Thing is a is a... Closure script library, or it's a closure library, or yeah, closure and closure script. Um, it's kind of, it's I guess it's just a collection of libraries um, around various three D um, aspects like texture, digital fabrication, um, rendering data. It's kind of everything all bundled together to make it very easy. And you can kind of render to web, um, kind of just a canvas, so you can have these on web pages and just generate your, your results there. Um, there's also facilitation for exporting them out into things like Flux Renderer or any kind of 3D library creating scenes and doing that, again, like you said, kind of interactively through the REPL, getting that all set up and then generating um, your wow. pictures. And uh, it's been used in a lot of uh, art exhibitions, um, all, I, think, I think mostly in the UK. I'm not sure it's ex if it's been used much outside, but... Uh, um, Lots of uh, art exhibitions have been using this library. It's uh, it's definitely a really interesting thing if you want to explore 3D kind of generation. Huh. Very, very cool. I'll definitely have to check that out. Thanks for the pointer. Well, Joseph, I mean, like so many of our guests, you are busy producing really cool things at such a rapid rate that, um, you know, we could easily, I think, talk for several hours. But uh uh, you know, we do uh, uh, want to respect your time and, of course, um, 
keep the episodes down into into the sub two hour range. Um, so I think it probably might be time for us to start wrapping up. But uh, I, again, I always want to make sure that we give our guests time to share anything that uh, that they want to share. So if there's anything else you'd like to talk about today, we can certainly do that. Um, but uh, I think we'll have to have you back on at some point uh, so we can always save more for later too. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm I'm, I'm happy we've covered a lot of stuff, so it's cool. Cool, yeah, we, it's been great. Um, well, of course, I'm not done ringing information out of you yet. Uh, we always have a question that we end with. Um, you're aware of that. And like I said, uh, uh, it's about advice. Uh, you've already given us a bunch of good advice, but uh, I wonder if you have any additional piece of advice you'd like to share with us here to close the show. I always feel uh, slightly odd giving people advice since I uh, never know what I'm doing ever, really, and I'm just making it up as I go along. But uh, I guess um, the thing I would say, advice, suggestion maybe, um, is to just take take your code and go and do something completely fun, uh, pointless, but self-expressive and share that with people. And maybe, you know, that, that'll be a small thing that'll be fun. Maybe it will inspire other people to look at code, to learn code or try and play around with it. Um, it's kind of seeing code in a new light, I think, that it can be creative and it can be self-expressive. And even if that's just going to a hack thing and programming a robot to run around the room, it, it's a lot of fun at, at worst. And, and at best, you may discover something to inspire people with. Very cool. Very, very cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I mean, I know we talked about how you, you make an effort to balance uh, you know, your work with your, your home life. And I know that we are, uh, because of the time difference, are are eating into your uh, home life. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today. It's been really great to talk to you. And uh, uh, you had a lot of really interesting and fun things to say. So thanks a ton. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Um, I should also mention, I believe that you are um, available for um, consulting work right now. Is that is that the case? Yes, that's right. Yep. Commissions, art projects, uh, closure consultancy, uh, all that stuff. Well, if, you, if, you, if anybody out there heard uh, what we were talking about today and thought that it sounded... Uh, like the sort of thing they could use your help with, I would certainly encourage them to uh, reach out to you. And, of course, we always have uh, contact information for our guests on the show notes page. So I want to make sure we, we give a shout-out to you because um, uh, it, it's obvious that you are a, uh, a deep thinker and a skilled uh, developer, so uh, people should um, be able to take advantage of that. So Anyway, I will thank you again. It has been really great to talk to you. I, I am definitely looking forward to getting a chance to do so again, whether that's in person, perhaps at some conference, or... Uh, uh, the next time we have you on the show, if nothing else. So uh, thanks a ton. Uh, it's been it's been great to have you. Definitely. Thanks very much. It's been fun. Right. Uh, same for us. And uh, we will call it there. This has been the CogniCast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Joseph Wilk on Twitter at Joseph Wilk. J-O-S-E-P-H-W-I-L-K. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production is by Russ Olson and by our new editor, whom we welcome, Damian Mack. 
The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. <laughs>